Every time I, uh, <clears throat> I drink the cup on Sunday, I say something to the effect of uh, the Lord Jesus washing away my sins. That's what I think of every time I take that cup. And that is what you should think of also because that is what we're taught in the Word uh, that this table not only represents, but what it actually does. It is the blood of Christ and uh, it does cleanse us weekly uh, from those sins that we have committed uh, if we are pursuing righteousness. Well, a little sermonette before the, the actual sermon. <clears throat> uh, if you'll turn with me to Leviticus 10, I was just thinking about this in light of uh, what uh, Brother Chris Gross asked for prayer in relation to. It's one of my favorite passages uh, in the Old Testament. <clears throat> what he asked that we pray for, though, I think... Uh, can be confusing if we're not reading it in conjunction with, uh, and I'm speaking of Leviticus 10.10, in conjunction with verse 11. And so I want to just read those uh, two verses uh, to you and then show you just how relevant they are to some of the things, or at least one of the things that we encounter uh, when dealing with evangelicals uh, today. So the relevancy of this particular text which may seem to some as obscure, the relevancy of this, uh, at least how Peter applies it to our own situation today. Leviticus 10, 10 and, and 11, you are to distinguish here, uh, speaking of the duties or the duty of God's priests, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. You remember that's what Chris uh, asked that we pray for in relation to uh, men in pulpits, but that's only half of what they were to do as part of their teaching duties. And, notice verse 11, you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So really two parts here. Uh, the first is distinguishing between the holy and the common, uh, which is just another way of saying uh, the clean and the unclean. And that, of course, refers to uh, the means by which we are made holy or righteous before God, or as we uh, said together in our confession uh, that we are justified. There is nothing in us by which we can justify ourselves before God. And so it is the job of God's priests, whether it's under the old covenant or under the new covenant, uh, to, uh, to make clear to God's people how they do that. By what means they are made clean before God or holy or sacred before God. And also to teach then, on top of that, God's statutes, his moral commands, what they're to do, what their obligation is in light of becoming clean or holy before God. And in 1 Peter, this is picked up. In 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, uh, as a means of our defense against those, and uh, who he has in mind here is uh, exactly uh, the kinds of people we deal with today who claim to be Christians, and I'm speaking, of course, uh, about evangelicals, the kinds of people who think that uh, because uh, we seek uh, to be obedient, to do the right things, to live righteous lives, that we are somehow saying by that uh, that we are made righteous by what we do. Uh, verse 13 of chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? 
zealous for what is good. You, you, you want to be obedient. You're concerned about having righteous behavior. And so Peter asked the question, who would harm someone for that? That seems ridiculous. You're zealous about that. You, you want to do the right thing before God. Uh, but he is, of course, aware that there are people who, who would be like that. There was in his day, uh, and there is uh, even today. But even if you should suffer for righteous, uh, righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So putting it into our uh, modern-day context, uh, the evangelical who uh, reviles your uh, concern to be righteous and accuses you of uh, somehow trying to make yourself righteous before God, to somehow uh, be trying to earn your way to heaven by what you do. That's the, the very thing that he is addressing here. Uh, don't be troubled by that. That they accuse you of that. That they revile you or want to harm you. You are suffering for righteousness sake. You should consider yourself blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled. And here now he's going to pick up our Leviticus 10, 10 and 11 in verses 15 and 16. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. And what he means by that there, what he's alluding to there is back to that Leviticus 10.10 passage. That first piece there of the priest's duty. Revere him. Honor him as the means by which you are holy. In other words, I don't justify myself. I'm not made righteous by the things that I do. No, my righteousness, my justification, my holiness before God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice there he says, this is the defense that we are to be prepared always to make. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Why do you believe that you're righteous? Because of what you do? No, because of Christ. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, again they're slandering you because of your concern for good behavior or righteous deeds, that those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And so how you're making your defense includes that as well. Christ, yes, is the means by which I am made righteous, but I nonetheless have an obligation because of that righteousness to good behavior. And so making the very distinction that is to be made by the priest is now an obligation given to the people of God as part of their obligation in obedience to God. We're given this duty to, to, uh, to, uh, to demonstrate to others or again to make that apologia, that defense. No, I'm not trying to earn my way to heaven. Christ is my righteousness but I still have an obligation to be obedient. And so here, the relevancy of that to that particular, uh, what we might see as obscure passage in Leviticus 10, verses 10 and 11, the relevancy of that to uh, even our own testimony to the world. We are to be making that as our defense. Yes, Christ is my righteousness, but I still have an obligation to be zealous for what is good, to good behavior. Okay, well, on to uh, the actual sermon uh, for today. What we're going to talk about, I'm calling uh, a punch list, and you'll, you'll see that 
uh, there at the top of your notes. If you don't have uh, notes, please raise your hand and uh, they'll get that to you. Anyone need notes? Oh, Jacob Ford. When it's only one of you, I get to do that, right? You... <laughs> That's right. That's right. Okay, anybody else? All right, let's go ahead and pray. Ask the Lord's blessing, and then we'll begin. Lord, thank you for uh, the goodness of your word. Thank you for the clarity of your word. A clarity, however, that doesn't come unless we understand all of it together. Unless we're using what has come before to, uh, to reveal to us or to give us understanding uh, with what has been given as, as, as new Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that uh, we are in a place where we have the freedom uh, to discuss these things and to build each other up and to uh, equip each other in these things. And I pray uh, even now as we talk about other things, uh, things that uh, might remain outstanding in our lives, things that need to be shored up, uh, that again, there would be encouragement and equipping. Make it so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll notice there at the top of the handout uh, a definition of uh, punch list. Some of you may not know uh, what that term refers to. It refers to this. A list of those items that remain outstanding or undone and must be completed to finish a job and receive final compensation. So punch lists are used in uh, construction. They're the the final items before uh, they receive uh, usually what's called retainage, that final piece of compensation for the job. Applied to the Christian life, no Christian can die with a punch list intact and expect to get to heaven. Let me say it again. Applied to the Christian life, no Christian can die with a punch list, a punch list intact and expect to get, a, get to heaven. In other words, we miss, must finish our punch list. We must finish our punch list. And several verses there, uh, I believe, uh, support this. What I've just told you, uh, we uh, must finish our punch list. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9 is the first. Verse 24. Paul says it this way. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. It's not enough just to run the race, uh, you need to finish the race. Or more importantly, you need to win the race. And to do that, again, means completing or finishing the race, which in this context would apply to finishing your punch list. Those things that remain outstanding, those things that need to be shored up in your Christian life. Paul, again, in terms of a race, uh, speaks of it this way in relation to his own life. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I finished my punch list. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And so there, Paul really making the connection between these two things. Hey, I, I, I finished everything that was on my list. I finished the race. I finished what was required of me. 
And as a result of that, because of that, there's a crown laid up. I'm going to heaven. There's an eternal reward or compensation waiting for me. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. So here in relation to the churches, uh, Jesus uh, speaks this way. Revelation chapter 2 verse uh, 23. Verse 23. uh, I believe it's 23. Maybe I've got it uh, wrong here in the notes. Uh, Revelation 2.23. Oh yes, I I wanted 23 for this reason. Notice at the end of that verse there, he says, I will give to each one according to to your works, according to what you do. And then in relation to this same church, Thyatira, uh, in this case, uh, he uh, says this, verses uh, 26 and then on to 3-1 with Sardis, uh, the one who comp- conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And uh, there again, a, a reference to eternal reward, but what does it take? Uh, one who conquers... Through what they do, I will give to each one according to your works. Whether you finish them or didn't finish them. And uh, if you want an eternal reward, if you want the final compensation, you need to finish the works. You need to conquer. You need to keep my works. Jesus here speaking of what he's called you to do until the end. Look at verse uh, 2 of chapter 3 in relation to Sardis. He says uh, this, uh, coming out of verse 1, I know your works, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. So you say, well, I don't think that that's uh, really what the Bible's talking about when it talks about... uh, Finishing the race, and yet here, this is exactly how Jesus speaks of it. He says, as it relates to this particular church, I know that you have works, but here's the problem. Here's what's going to keep you from the the eternal or final compensation. Here's what's going to keep you from getting to heaven. I have not found your works complete. And there that word complete, uh, very similar, if not the same word that Paul uses back in 2 Timothy chapter 4 when he says, I have finished the race. I have completed it. I have completed the works. Christ's works. Those things that he has given me to do. And so as the people of God, we should be concerned about that. And as your shepherd, I should, uh, I should have at least some knowledge of those things that remain outstanding in your life and on a regular basis be sharing those things with you. And you, so you'll see at the top of the list there, uh, this is called uh, punch list part one because we're, we've got other items we're going to deal with uh, next week. Uh, but you'll notice also a date, August uh, 2021, because uh, I, uh, I see myself in the future doing this again. Ever so often just giving to you uh, the punch list, which represents what? Those things your pastor believes to still be on some of his people's Punch list. And so this is very personal to you, which is how we see uh, the books of the New Testament being written. They're, uh, they're, they're personal letters to the churches dealing with things very specific to those people. So that's just a good shepherding. You speak specifically to the problems of your people. 
And so as it relates uh, to that, here is the first on the list. Now, this doesn't mean that everything on the list, by the way, is, is true of you. Uh, maybe only some of it or none of it or all of it, I don't know. But uh, your, your, your mindset needs to be, okay, as we talk about these things, uh, is this possibly true of me? Which means not saying, that's not true, so who, who's pastor talking about? Don't do that. Uh, to take this to heart, personally, is this me? Here's the first. Ditch the skirt. Ditch the skirt. That's a punch list item. Ditch the skirt. First Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, you should know the text. At least the men in this church should know the text. You should memorize it, some of you. Paul writes, it's part of his uh, punch list here, and that's uh, essentially how these, uh, these final verses are functioning in 1 Corinthians 16. It's the last part of his letter, and so what does he, what does he leave off with? As he does oftentimes, by the way, in his letters, he, he leaves, with, uh, leaves off with a punch list. And here's part of that punch list uh, for this particular church. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. Act like men. We have a man crisis in our world today. A man crisis that is being exacerbated by the world's gender confusion campaign. The solution or the remedy is found in men acting like men, which means looking to how God defines that and behaving accordingly in obedience. Which means, fathers, this is what you need to be teaching your children, not only in word, uh, but also by your example. Act like men. According to how God defines that, not how you feel. There is no hope for the world or the church unless men step up and be men. Why do I say that? Because men are the only ones God will use to lead and deliver. This is the testimony not only of Scripture, but also of history. And the best example, the very best example is Jesus. God did not send a woman to save the world. He sent a man. Men need to be men, therefore, if there is to be hope and a positive outlook for our future. It starts with Men. And guess what? When men act like men, the women feel comfortable again, glorying in their roles as women. The biggest reason there is so much feminization, role reversal, and even gender confusion today is because men have vacated or abused their position. They're instead acting more like women. And the result is a world in panic and women attempting to fill the void. What then acting like men or ditching the skirt looks like. How God defines it. We're not talking machismo here or being macho. That's how the world defines what it means to be a man. Right? Uh, grow some facial hair and buy some guns and, and a pair of boots, right? And that makes you somehow a man. That's not how God defines it. 
Here's how God defines it. You don't cry when you get picked on. Let me tell you something. My parents were not Christian, but the one thing my parents understood, and when I say my parents, I mean both my mom and my dad. And that was because the culture at the time that I was growing up was far more in tune with God's word than they are today. If we cried when we got picked on, we got a spanking. We got a spanking. My mom would even say, you grow up and you act like a man. When I was a little boy. You don't cry when you get picked on. Or when you don't get your way. Or when things are scary or fearful or rough. You've heard the term uh, career suicide. If I do this, that would be career suicide. Or if that person does that, uh, that would be career suicide. Listen, listen to me when I say this. Men crying because things are tough or because they're not getting their way or because they're being picked on, that's man suicide. You do that, you, you, you cry like that and you're a man? Like cutting your own throat. That's man suicide. That's not what it means to act like a man. Ditch the skirt. Here's what else it doesn't mean. Or it means rather. You don't mope, panic, fall apart, let fear paralyze you or keep you from going forward or doing the right thing. What makes the difference between the person who has courage and the person who, who doesn't? Well, some would say that it's the person who has courage doesn't have fear. That's wrong. Fear is uh, common to all people. It's what you do with it. It's what you do with it. For a man, what you do with that is is you don't keep it, uh, you don't keep it from keeping you Or you don't allow it, rather, from keeping you to go forward in doing the right thing. You don't allow it to paralyze you. Here's what else it means. You don't vacillate in your convictions or your beliefs. What does vacillate mean? You you, you go back and forth. That's not what it means to be a man. We're going to see proof for all this, by the way, in here in just a second. You don't become fickle. Very similar. You don't become fickle in your commitments. Right? You, 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 you're very strong about saying what you're going to be committed to, but the moment any kind of adversity comes, any kind of problem comes, it doesn't feel right, and you quit. Or you throw temper tantrums. Here's what else it means. You don't get angry at the righteous when they rebuke you or correct you. Like David said, that's oil upon my head. Uh, I, I want that. I'm a man. A man receives correction. A man wants correction from the righteous. Finally, you never... Never, 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 never feel sorry for yourself. Play the victim. Make excuses or again decide to quit when faced with adversity. 
especially the adversity caused by your own sin. This is what we today call ownership. You own it. You never feel sorry for yourself. You may feel like it, but you don't do it. You don't play the victim, which is what you're doing, by the way, when you make excuses. It's always everybody else's fault. You're, you're picking on me. You're too harsh. You're too petty. Whatever it is, etc., etc. That's not what it means to be a man. That's not how God defines a man. That's not what God calls men to act like. And uh, adversity is not uh, the sign that it's time to quit. Especially uh, when that adversity is caused uh, by your own sin. We've talked about this before, this uh, phrase here in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, act like men, is actually uh, picked up in the Greek rendering or translation of the Old Testament in Joshua chapter 1, verses 5, 6, and 9, where we have these words, be very strong and courageous. And so how we're to understand uh, this idea of acting like men is just that, which really encompasses all these things that, uh, uh, that we just talked about, right? Be very strong and courageous, most especially uh, in light of uh, the context that God is giving this act like men instruction to Joshua. What is the context? They're going to war. And uh, he says, look, don't you dare be fickle. Don't you vacillate, right? Don't be paralyzed by the fear. Don't quit because of the adversity. Don't cry like a little girl. You be very strong and you be courageous. Says it three times. Three times. And then gives a promise. If you do that, if you act like a man, God says, I'll be with you. Which means the antithesis of that is also true. If you don't, I won't. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 14, as well as in chapter 10, verse 7, we see this idea picked up in this phrase men of valor. The mighty men, valor. And that term valor means courage in the face of grave danger. Again, courage. That doesn't uh, uh, doesn't quit, doesn't become paralyzed. That person doesn't become those things in the face of fear or adversity or difficulty. Instead, they keep going. They keep doing the right thing. They they stay committed to their course. Versus, as in V-E-R-S-U-S, or in contrast to what we read in Jeremiah 51, here, uh, God, in relation to uh, the Babylonians, his punishment against them, and bringing the Medes and the Persians, he says uh, this, and uh, by saying these words, we get uh, another understanding of what it means to act like men. Uh, the warriors of Babylon has ce- have ceased fighting. They remain in their strongholds. Their strength has failed. They have become women. Not literally. Isn't it talking about sex changes here? 
They have become willing, um, women. Her dwellings are on fire. Her bars are broken. One runner runs to meet another and one messenger to meet another to tell the king of Babylon, Babylon that his city is taken on every side. The fords have been seized. The marshes have been burned with fire and the soldiers are in panic. This is how they become like women, you see. Panicky. Ladies, this is uh, not meant to somehow uh, put you down. God realizes that you're the weaker vessel, which is all the more the reason why he expects his men to be strong on your behalf. Not panicking. Not moping or falling apart. But strong. I've told my wife over the years, as I have felt various and different things over the years, I've said to her, What would it be like if I got to that pulpit and I was fearful and vacillating and questioning? What would that do to the congregation of God's people? I could ask you the same thing. What would it do? If I got up here and said, Oh, I just, I don't know. And I'm fearful. You need someone to lead you. It doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter any of those things. What's going on, the adversity that I might face. You need someone who's going to act like a man. And lead you. And the same is in the homes. Whether it be husbands or fathers to their sons. If their sons are going to learn what it's like to be men, they need to see it in their fathers. James chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, this aspect as it relates to loving rebuke. Instead of getting angry or making excuses, not listening, being unteachable. Verses 19 through 21, know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone be quick to hear. Listen, slow to speak. Don't open your mouth with some kind of rebuttal or excuse. Slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. What is he talking about? He's talking about a person who every time they get rebuked or corrected, uh, they, they get angry. That's not what it means to act like a man. You accept that. You know why? Because you've got thicker skin. You're okay with that. You're good with that. You don't fall apart over that. You don't become angry with your brothers and sisters because of that. You don't say, stop picking on me. You're good with it. As he says here, you don't become angry. Rather, you receive with meekness the implanted word. In John chapter 6, verses 67 and 68, there Jesus turns to his disciples after some very hard teaching. That's what we're told, at least that's how the Jews received it. They said it's difficult to listen to what you have to say at this particular juncture in his ministry. And uh, Jesus turns to his disciples and said, are you going to go too? Because it says at that time most of his disciples were no longer following him. And so Jesus turns and says, are you going too? And, And Peter says, where are we going to go, Lord? You have the the words of eternal life. And so he takes this, uh, this bold stand in the moment, but uh, by the time we get to John 21, which is after Jesus' death, uh, where do we find Peter? 
going back to fishing. He's quitting. He's fickle in his commitments. Which is why Jesus meets him on the beach with these words, Peter, do you love me? Which is just another word as we've talked about many times for loyalty. Are you loyal to me? You see, that's what men are. They're loyal. Will you be loyal? Will you go where I want you to, even though you don't want to go there? Will you feed my sheep? Will you be what I've called you to be? Will you be a man, Peter? That's really what he's asking Peter to do, to be a man. A man of courage and a man of commitment. Proverbs 24, verse 10 says, If you you fail, if your strength fails in the day of adversity, how small is your strength? Interesting, Job 36 Job 36.15, it's a text worth turning to, tells us a little bit about why it is that God brings adversity into our lives, why it is that God brings affliction. Job 36 verse 15, he delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. Why does God bring affliction? Why does God bring adversity? For our deliverance, for our salvation. But what is being assumed here? That we respond in the right way to such adversity. That we respond the right way to such affliction. That we receive it like men. That we receive it in a good way. That we say, the Lord wants to teach me something. The Lord wants me to to wake up. And to be a man of action. Rather than sitting around and playing with myself and feeling sorry for myself. Act like men. Ditch the skirt. Number two. Teach sinners your ways. Teach sinners your ways. Psalm 51 Psalm 51, this is the, uh, the psalm of David after his uh, sin with Bathsheba. And uh, David wants forgiveness. He wants God to cleanse him, uh, cleanse him of his sins and to restore him again. And uh, that's uh, the primary focus of this, uh, this particular psalm is uh, a plea for God to do that. And uh, we read also here what David will commit himself to if God does that. Verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then, notice... Here's what I'll do, Lord. If I can have that promise from you that you'll do that for me, here's what I'll do. I will teach transgressors. I will teach sinners your ways. And sinners will return to you. I will teach sinners your way. 
What is he talking uh, about here? Well, for those who have been forgiven or are truly repentant so as to receive such forgiveness, they demonstrate it by drawing closer to the covenant community and speaking openly about their failures as a means to dissuading others from following down the same path. That's what it means to teach sinners your ways as a sinner. Rather than becoming some aloof weirdo, acting like a dog who's been beat too many times. You get rebuked or you go under discipline and now you're the individual who's aloof every time the the congregation is around. You stand around just waiting for someone to come over and kind of lick your wounds. Instead, what you're to be is like David. Drawing yourself even closer into the covenant community so that you might teach them, I I am the man, this is what I've done and, and I want to use that to minister to you. Don't be like me. Follow the Lord. Follow the Lord. There's been a... Let me just say this. For some of you, 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 you're still confused on this issue as it relates to people who have been put under discipline. Even though we, we rectified a situation years ago as it related to whether they should be ostracized or welcomed back into the community as far as participation goes. Not at the table, of course, but that they're still members here. Not in covenant, but members nonetheless. And yet some of you are, are, are confused at times as to why they're serving. And let me just say there, there are, there are people in this congregation who are under discipline and they're doing more than people who are not. They're doing just what David talks about here. They're teaching sinners God's ways. They're looking at their own life and saying, look at what I did. Don't be like me. They're hosting Bible studies. They're involved all the time. They're involved more than they were before. That's true repentance, guys. That's what it's supposed to look like. That's what it's supposed to look like. Teach sinners your ways. Not a good way in saying, do what I did, but don't do what I did. Lord, if you give me forgiveness, I'll do that. I'll, 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 be a, I'll be a light to your people. And the only way a, a sinner can do that is by pointing to himself and saying, don't be like me. A father to his children. A mother to her children. Right? Speaking to her children and saying, don't be like me. Be like Christ. And learn from my mistakes. Teach sinners your ways. This, by the way, is what it means to come to the light. John 3.21 says that true believers come to light uh, so that their deeds may be seen to be wrought in God. It means that you're being transparent and open now with your life. You're open. You're no longer trying to put on appearances. You don't care what people think of you anymore. What you care about is Christ and His glory. That's what we all need to be. And it shouldn't take discipline to create that. But when it does, we should rejoice in that. Number three. Imitate. 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 Don't, and here's my word, ignorate. Imitate, don't ignorate. 
called to imitate God or Christ in everything we do. Ephesians 5.1 says, be imitators of God. Philippians 2.5 that my brother Scott Steen referenced during the prayer time says that we are to have this attitude in ourselves that was in Christ Jesus. We're to be like Christ. We're to imitate Him even to the point of death. Submitting ourselves to God in all things. We're called to do that. Which means, as uh, we talked about under the uh, uh, imitator's sermon that I preached up at the, uh, the campground, we should always be asking the question, what would God or Jesus do? In all of life's situations, what would God or Jesus do? And I would even add to that list, Paul. What would the apostle Paul do? Why do I say that? Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verse 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me, even as I am of Christ. And I think that uh, Paul is a great example uh, for uh, us to also imitate, uh, especially when dealing with uh, sin. Because unlike Jesus, Paul was a sinner. And we're sinners. And so uh, we need some, exi- we need some uh, instruction, uh, we need some examples of what to do when that happens. And so we can ask the question, what did Paul do? How did Paul treat his failures? How did Paul treat his sin? Philippians chapter 3, verse 13. What does he say? One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and pressing forward to what lies ahead. And uh, some of you, this is a major punch list item. Because you you don't seem to know that. You sit around wallowing in your sin, feeling sorry for yourself because of your failures. And yet that isn't what Paul did. And again in verse 17 he says, uh, imitate these things in us that you have seen in us, in that very text. uh, Which means uh, this as well. Forgetting what lies behind. We have a mission to complete. The upward call uh, in Christ Jesus. Which is what he says in the very next verse. I forget that. I deal with it, I'm responsible, which a part of being responsible, a part of repentance is forgetting what lies behind, not sitting around and crying about it. In contrast, we can also consider what not to do by asking the question, what would Judas do? What would Judas do? Great way of knowing what not to do. We talked about money last week. What did Judas do with the money? Remember, he, he was the one that handled the money bag. Well, Judas was stingy. We're told that about him. He was a greedy man. Right? I won't be like Judas. How about his sin? How did uh, Judas handle his sin? Well, he sat around feeling sorry for himself and then eventually hanged himself, killed himself. You want to know what not to do? Look at Judas. Ask the question, what would Judas do and do the opposite? Or again, you want to know what to do? Real simple. What would Jesus do? What would God do? What would Paul do? Many Christians are guilty of not only never asking that question to determine what to do, but also playing the card of ignorance. And here's the ignorate piece, right? They don't ask the question of imitation, and so they play the card of ignorance. I don't know what to do, so it is not my fault if I fail. Thinking that God will somehow let them off. 
This really goes back to the psalm prior to uh, Psalm 51. In Psalm 50, uh, God says, You thought I was altogether like you. You thought I was a man. And I really believe this, and I believe this is what God is getting at, or at least it's a part of what he's getting at there in that psalm, is we, we think God is uh, like a stupid human. And we, we, why I say that is because we, we play this card with humans, do we not? We play the dumb card. Oh, I didn't know. If I would have known, I surely would have changed. Right? And so we, uh, we, we, we avoid knowing even. We avoid being around the people who are going to tell us what to do because then we know we'll be culpable, not realizing that we're culpable already. And we think somehow we're going to get to stand before God and play that card. Uh, I didn't know, Lord. Surely if I would have known that that's what you required of me, even though the pastor preached it Sunday after Sunday and the faithful, righteous people in the body of Christ told me that week after week, I didn't know, Lord. Surely I didn't know. And if I did, I would have done it. Well, that excuse, understand, will never work. Proverbs 24. Proverbs 24 Verse 12, if you say, behold, we did not know this. I love that. He's addressing this very issue. Because it was a problem back then, just like it's a problem today. If you say that, oh, we, we didn't know. Or I don't know what to do. I want to do the right thing. I want to follow Jesus. I want to be obedient, but I just don't know what to do. Behold, if you say that, if that's how you speak, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? You're not going to play that card with God. That's the whole point. That dumb card's not going to work. He's going to say, here's what you didn't do. And that's what you're getting judged according to. Oh, but I didn't know. Uh-uh. Nope, not going to fly. Not going to fly. God knows that one you do. God knows the righteous, holy, faithful church you've been a part of. God knows that you had everything you needed for life and godliness right here in his book. And if you truly didn't know, as you think, it's only because of your refusal to know. And he knows that. He knows that. Deuteronomy 29.29, the secret things are for the Lord, but the revealed things are expected of you. Teach them then to your children. Expected to know. You are expected to know and to be equipped. No excuse. You're not going to stand before God and say, Oh, we, did, we didn't know this. Some examples. Parents using this excuse that they don't know how to raise their kids. Really? I got news for you. you got, you're making it way too complicated. Real simple. What would God do? Does he respond in kind? You respond in kind. Start there and I, I guarantee you 95% of the problems will go away. How to raise your kids. Or husbands saying they don't know how to lead. Really? I'll tell you where it starts again. 95% of the problems. Act like a dang man. That's where it starts. That's leadership right there. Be a man. Be the example. 
Give your, give your wife and your family some security, why don't you? Act like a man. People saying that they don't know how to, uh, to live the Christian life, their day-to-day lives. They, they don't know what to do. Really? Be righteous. Be an imitator of God. Be asking the question, what would God do as it relates to everything, all situations? And go to his book to find the answer. When you read your Bible every day, read with that kind of a mindset. That he's giving me the intel that I need so that I can do what he wants me to do in every situation. Work my job, go to school, obey my parents, etc., etc., etc. Asking the question, what would God or Jesus or Paul do? And following the biblical answer solves the problem every time. And again, if you don't know the biblical answer, go figure it out. Again, ignorance will never be an excuse on judgment day. It will never be be an excuse. Number four on the punch list. Be a sponge, not a shield. Be a sponge, not a shield. I've told some of you this, at least one of you this. I think that those who get saved can essentially be divided into two groups, sponges and shields. And the sponges, we'll start with them. Those are people who, when they get saved, they're super excited to learn everything they can and be around the saints as much as they possibly can, and they are eagerly ready to change wherever they need to change. That's the sponge. And it's great when we get people like that. They come in, they're Everything is positive. They're happy people. People feed off their energy when they come into the body. Those types of people. Let me give an example of two people. I'll just call them out right now. Jacob and Monique Ford. Would everyone agree here that they're that way? Everything. They're just sponges, right? They want to be with God's people. Uh, uh, Anything they can draw in, they're that. and, And you want to be around them. They're positive people that way. They're sponges. And wherever they need to change, they want to change. They can't wait to grow and have their lives maximized for Christ. They want to imitate Him. Again, they are sponges, not shields. What are shields like? Well, they're people that get saved, but, and they're excited, and they're eager to learn, and to be with the saints, and even change, but only to a degree. You see, they have limits. In respect to those things. They have limits. There are things from their old lives, whether it be biological family or traditions or hobbies, etc., etc., that they are not willing to see replaced or discounted or changed or grow out of unless they get a direct audible from God. That's essentially how it works, from my experience. Again, they, they're similar in the sense that they would say they're excited and they're eager to learn and, and even to change. But again, there's, there's limits to that, you see. And it's always been that way with some of these people. The sponges and the shields. I know in my flock who are the sponges and the shields. The question is, do you know which one you are? Well, the question is, do you have limits? Are you always getting in trouble because of those limits? 
problems with biological family and the, uh, maybe the loyalty that you give to them that you shouldn't be giving to them or particular traditions that you continue to hold to uh, that get in the way of the time you should be spending with the body of Christ or even hobbies. You see, you're a shield if you're not willing to replace those things or have those things discounted or grow out of those things for the sake of Christ and His people. These people, again, are guarded like a shield. Yet the very definition of disciple is learner. That's what the term means, uh, which means we are to be sponges and never shields. Constantly teachable, learning, growing. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verses 1 through 12, or verses 1, uh, 1 and 2 rather, not 12. Uh, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. The first verse there, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. That first verse is there because it's what's needed or it's what needs to be removed if we are to do the second thing. Which again is to, uh, to drink up or uh, like a baby to milk. That's just how we're to be to God's word and growth in our salvation. Which means this, we need to stop making excuses. We need to stop being guarded in our growth like a shield because of self-inflicted hindrances. Again, what are those hindrances? Deceit, the lies that we tell ourselves. Slander, maybe because you're always opening your mouth and slandering others in the body of Christ. By the way, do you know that slander is just any time you say something that is destructive against another person? And you don't have the evidence... To prove it, which means it's false, at least it's to be considered false until you do. And it doesn't matter who it is, as I've told you many times, whether that be the devil, we have no right to say anything false against anyone at any time. You say, well, that's not my, oh, that's just my opinion. Since when does your opinion override truth? Which is what we're to be committed to. We're people of truth, not people of opinions. And so these things get in there and these, uh, the, they are, as I say here, self-inflicted hindrances, deceit, and, and slander. And how does slander work against us from really being sponges? Because we, we tell ourselves and are deceived by the lies that we listen to, the slandering of our own mouth, as I've said many times and we're going to talk about it next week. Self-programmed robots. You, of all people, are listening to your words more than anybody else, whether you realize it or not. At the very least, your brain is, you see. And what you're doing by that is you're, you're programming yourself in a certain way. And so when your mouth says false things about other people, you say, well, that's just how I feel. Well, that kind of slander, guess what it does? It hinders you then, doesn't it? It hinders you from wanting to be a part of the body of Christ. Because you've got all this deceit, all this slanderous uh, thinking in your mind about those people. Hypocrisy. Deceit, notice in the text, deceit, slander, hypocrisy is another thing uh, that hinders us uh, from uh, really becoming the sponges that God calls us to be. Hypocrisy. What is hypocrisy? You, 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 you're, all, you're a poser. That, that term means um, 
is a term that was used, uh, this term hypocrisy that was used uh, uh, to, to, sell, uh, uh, to sell clay pots in ancient times. And so they would have, they would have uh, signs on these, uh, these pots and you would pay more money for these actual pots. Uh, they, would say, they would literally say in, in the Greek, without hypocrisy. And what that meant is that there was, there was no cracks filled in with wax. So they're saying it was a whole unit. It wasn't made to look like something that it really wasn't. It was without the cracks being covered over. And that's hypocrisy. You're a poser. You want to look like something you're really not. Well, that hinders you too, doesn't it? Because if you really become a part of the body, all of a sudden you're transparent and everybody knows. So we do away with those things. And envy, which is a bigger issue than we realize. Solomon says that envy is essentially what rules the world. One man being jealous of another. I don't like it that he gets to do something and I don't. Right? We need to put all of those things away. Uh, things that cause us to be guarded. Things that hinder us from becoming the sponges that God wants us to be. And again, as it says here, what does a sponge look like? Taking to God's word like a baby to milk. And growing up as much as we can into our salvation. Sponges. Sponges. Second Corinthians chapter 6. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verses 11 and following here, Paul is scolding the Corinthians for some of this. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. We've been transparent. We've been all in with you. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. You're guarded like a shield. That's his point, is it not? You're restricted. You're like this. In return, I speak to you as children, widen your hearts also. Become sponges. Be all in. Be all in. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Another text you should be familiar with there where it says what they were devoted to. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. The early church, all these people getting saved and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayers. Again, the key word there being that word devoted. You see, the early church knew that the only way to live the Christian life was being sponges in all of these respects to the apostles' teaching, in learning, in fellowship, in breaking bread, spending time with one another. And that's what they did. Look at verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes... They were together. They were sponges. Anytime they could be with the people of God, they were with the people of God. Anytime they could learn, they were open and listening and teachable. Notice also verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. That phrase, very interesting phrase, in common. The only way this happens is if people are giving up those things that would make them different from the rest of the covenant community in their thinking or commitment. That's his point. We have all things in common. He's talking about the fact that we're all the same now. Does that mean the same haircut and clothes? No. But he's talking about that we all have the same values. It's the same thing that Paul picks up in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, when he says, you are to be of the same mind and the same judgment. The same thinking and the same commitment. The same value set. We're all doing the same things. That's what, what sponges look like. We're feeding off each other absorbing the relationships we have with each other, which means being influenced by each other. Iron, sharpening iron. 
rather than isolating ourselves. Just that, the visual. Arm out. I'm away. Guarded, right? I'll take a little bit of that, but to, to a degree. So ask yourself, right now, are you the sponge or are you the shield? Trust me, we've got shields in our congregation. You've been that way for some time. You know, it's really interesting. When you get saved, and this, this is a sermon in and of itself, the scriptures teach that when we get saved, we become literally a new race. We are adopted into the lineage and line of Abraham. We become, as Romans 2 says, we become spiritual Jews. Which is why the whole racist stuff that goes on in the world doesn't even apply to us. We are all of the same race now. We are spiritual Jews. And, and, and the text, what's really interesting in the New Testament is, it speaks to Gentiles as though the ancestors of the Jews are now our ancestors. It uses that very phrase, our ancestors. So that becomes now our family tree. They become our ancestors. That's how we're to think of it. And along with that comes also a new culture. God gives us our culture, just as he did to his first people. He took them into land. He says, don't dress like them, don't look like them, don't act like them. I'm going to give you your culture. And when we become Christians, the same is true, which means we need to learn that while leaving behind the old. I don't care what your culture was. I don't care what your race was. You're a new creation. A new creation is all about learning the new culture and the new race and the new ancestry that you're now now a part of so that you can imitate that and be a part of that and be proud of that and glory in that. It's about new creation, not self-preservation of the old. And the only way that that happens is by becoming a sponge. A sponge. There's at least two reasons people are guarded or shields instead of sponges. Not fully opening up their lives or being all in. Uh, The first is uh, they don't realize that being a sponge is the only option if you want to get to heaven. It's the only option. You say, well, I'm fearful or I I feel afraid and this is all I've ever known. Get that every single one of us were exactly where you were at. And I'm speaking about those who are sponges. We all had things that we had to leave behind and what we were going into was foreign. It's the same for everyone. That's okay. But that's not an excuse to not do it. Because what you need to realize is, is that this is the only option that God gives to you. You do not have the option to stay in the old ways. You don't have the option to be guarded. To do it only to a degree because you have certain biological family commitments. Or you have certain traditions that your family has always held to and you're, you're, you're bound to, uh, to, to continue those traditions. Whatever it is. All of this is picked up in Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62, another text that, uh, uh, that uh, you're familiar with. Uh, one man says, hey, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Another, let me go bury my father. In relation to all those people, Jesus uses this phrase, and we've talked about it before, this idiom. You know, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy for the kingdom. What is he saying? You're either all in or you're not in at all. You are either a sponge to this, you commit fully to this, or, or you can't be a part of the team. You're not going to heaven. And so this old way stuff, it needs to go. It needs to be truly old. 
You are something new. And what that newness requires is you be a sponge. It's the only way. Listen, guys, it's the only way you're going to get to heaven. It's the only way. This is why you need, to, you need to get this off your punch list. Because some of you, your shields, you're still guarded. And some of you, you know, what's, you know what's really sad? Some of you, it's pathetic. I'm embarrassed for you. Some of you that are doing it, you're men and you're leading your families this way. Which means you're not acting like a man because you're giving into fear. Second reason uh, then that they do it, and here's the fear piece. They are afraid that such time, commitment, and change, and the losses or sacrifice uh, that will mean in regard to their old life could be something they will later regret. And I've heard this on multiple occasions in my office. And, and, and uh, I'll tell you, I'm super thankful for the people that have been honest enough to share that with me, where I've said, why won't you be all in? Why won't you be all in? And they say, because I'm afraid. If I leave all of that behind, my own life, my old family, whatever it is, if I do that, I'm going to fail over here and then I'll have nothing to go back to. And so what do they do? They keep one foot in the world and one foot in Christ. That's the shield, right? Limitations. I can't be all in because then I won't have anything to go back to and I'll regret it. I'll regret it. So here's the question. Here's the question you need to ask yourself. If you're that kind of a person, if that's the way you think about this, is Jesus really going to call us to something we will later regret? Would he ever really do that? And here's another question. Have you ever met someone who did that or even read about someone who did that, who was all in and later regretted it? Has that ever been the case? No, we all know the answer. As a matter of fact, it's just the opposite. You look around this church to those who are obvious sponges, and the last thing you see is regret. That's the last thing. Let me tell you this. People who have left the church, people, those of us who have been here for any length of time, you're going to, as soon as I say this, you'll agree with this. It'll, you'll get it. Every, think about people who have left the church. People who have left the church have always been shields instead of sponges. That's always been the case. So there's no regret here. When you look at the sponges, what would they tell you? They would tell you how happy and thankful they are for it. Here's what else I'd tell you. How uh, their lives have truly changed because of it. Remember that thing that I sent out a couple of weeks ago? You, uh, you are most committed to what you most fear. And uh, this is a part of this. You say, well, I'm worried about uh, failing. I'm going to leave all this behind and I'm going to go full bore into this. Guess what? Because you fear now losing that more than anything else, because that's all you have is God and his people. Because that's all you have, guess what? You'll be most committed to that, which means you will never fail. There it is. There it is. That's the key. Here's what you don't realize. If you don't go all in, you'll never be committed enough and you will fail. You're guaranteeing your failure. You're guaranteeing it. Last item for today on the punch list. Last item. Get your head in the game. Get your head in the game. Too often... When people fail or fall into sin, we hear this excuse. If I would have just thought about it, or something to that effect, right? Uh, Oh, I, I wasn't thinking. And they say that as though uh, that somehow makes what they did less of an offense to God. <laughs> like they're going to stand there before God and say, the brain that you gave me, 
The brain that makes me different than the animals. The brain that allows me to be a conqueror. That allows me to live differently. I, I just chose to turn it off and not use it. Never will uh, that be the excuse that flies with God. Similar to what we talked about as it relates to the uh, issue of ignorance. The fact that you just chose not to think at all? No. Uh, Which means we need to always, as I say here, have our heads in the game. And the game I'm talking about is the game of life. Going back to that text that we started with, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, that's actually where Paul starts his punch list to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13 again. Notice the word he uses, be watchful. Guys, he's talking about the very thing I'm talking about right now. Be watchful. Wake up and have your head in the game. Hey, wake up, right? And hear dad saying to his son, hey, wake up, man. Get your head in the game. Be watchful. Know what's going on around you. Jesus in Luke chapter 21, verse 36 is the same thing. Be watchful at all times. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 6, same thing. Be watchful. Be awake. Or wake up. Revelation 16, verse 15. Those who are awake... Which again is just another uh, way of saying watchfulness or having your head in the game. Satan, by the way, is looking for people who wander aimlessly through life, who are not watchful or awake, whose heads are not in the game. That's who he's looking for. Even now. You know, Matthew 13, Jesus is one of the parables that he tells there about the kingdom. And he's talking about the kingdom of God on earth, the church. He says that in the evening, in this particular parable, the enemy comes along and sows uh, seeds of weeds along with the, the wheat. Sometimes we call those the tares. And it says uh, he, put, he plants those weeds in along the wheat and it grows up with the wheat. And in the parable, uh, the servants come to the master and say, hey, should we pull up the weeds that the enemy has planted among our crops? And... Uh, and uh, Jesus says you can't do that because if you do, you may, you may pull up the good with the bad. But the point is, is that uh, there's operatives all the time in and among us. Sent from the enemy himself. And who are those operatives looking for? They're looking for the people who are aimless. The people who are not watchful or awake. The people whose heads are not in the game. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 uh, is the text that I'm referring to. There he says, be sober mind, be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Who's he looking for? Those who aren't watchful. Those who uh, don't have their heads in the game. So what exactly does that look like? To be watchful, to be awake, to have your head in the game. Here's what it looks like. Several things. Constantly being aware or assessing your current situation, mission, or purpose. Constantly being aware, assessing constantly your current situation, your mission, your purpose, and what that situation, mission, or purpose requires. Head in the game. Hey, what's going on? Come on, where are we? Hello, right? Head in the game. Constantly being aware. Constantly. 
For you kids, sometimes you, you, when we tell you stuff as adults, you think, well, it's not really true that we're doing this. Uh, at, at the very least, one adult uh, telling you, this is what I have to live every single day as an adult to follow Christ. It's constantly, constantly, constantly being aware of my surroundings, of my world, what my mission is in that moment, what the situation is and what it requires in that moment, what my purpose is in that moment. Constantly assessing. It means also being aware that God is all, always watching and will judge your every action. He's always watching. And he's going he's to bring everything, including careless words, to judgment. Why is that important? Well, uh, in one minute things may be okay, and in the next, they're not. Which is why I need to be vigilant. I need to be constant in that assessment, in, in that awareness of my situation. Having your head in the game includes then constantly paying attention to not only what's currently going on, but what direction things are going and how it may affect you or those under your care. We had a situation up at the campground. Embarrassing for those who were involved. And the response we got from what happened was, oh, well, if we had been thinking about it, that's essentially what it was. Well, if I just wasn't thinking. And uh, something that was an, a very okay situation because of uh, uh, the change in time, in this case, uh, went from something that was uh, very okay to something that was very not okay. And what was the problem? Didn't have your head in the game, man. You checked out. You don't get that option. You don't get that option. Your head needs to always be in the game. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul uses the example of a soldier. Or excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. Paul uses the example of a soldier and even athletes or a farmer. No soldier, verse 4, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, gets entangled in civilian pursuits since... His aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Listen, he's got a mission. There's all this stuff going on in the world. Distractions, right? And uh, he's like, look, look. I'm a soldier, man. No time off. I've got a mission to complete. I, I've got a purpose here. And so he, he's not uh, getting caught up in all these other things that he could get entangled. And I love the word here. Entangled in, if he so choose. If he let his guard down. If he was no longer watch. Same is true for an athlete, at least an athlete that wins the prize. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. He, he has to constantly keep his head in the game if he's going to win. That's one of the things that uh, makes, uh, I think, another reason I think that football is such a great sport is because the one thing because of the dynamics of how uh, football is played is that uh, you have this proximity of the players one to another uh, from the teams. And, and a part of, this is the part that you don't hear, but that goes on on that field, is all of this, uh, this, this mental banter as a means to get them off their game, as a means to get them to stop focusing, to get them to take their head out of the game. And so all kinds of blasphemous slurs and all kinds of stuff is being thrown across the line. To get in the head of that person so that they get their head out of the game. And so a part of what makes an athlete in that particular setting so great is uh, they also have the, 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 the mental uh, ability to keep their head in the game in the midst of all that. And the same is true for us. Like that athlete that wins the prize. 
We compete according to the rules. We, we keep our head in the game. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Uh, here he's bringing out the piece that what that requires is hard work. But you're the first to receive the reward. Think over what I say. The Lord will give you understanding in everything. I love that. Ponder. Think about it. And you'll see, in other words, that this is how you are to be. Romans 13 Verse 14, pretty cool text if you really understand what Paul is saying here because it relates to this very thing, keeping your head in the game. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. You think about the military. One of the things that uh, the military, and I, I believe that this has always been true, and again, I believe this is what Paul's referring to when he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that helps military people to uh, be focused uh, on their mission or their purpose and to not get distracted are their uniforms. Right? They've got their uniform on. So that, hey, here, here's when I'm a soldier today, right? This is my job. I'm on duty. I need to stay focused, right? I need to stay in the battle. And Paul's saying, you've got that kind of uniform too. It's called the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're to think that way. Put on that uniform every day, mentally. I'm putting on Christ. I have a purpose. In other words, keep your head in the game. In the game. As it relates to being aware that God is always watching and He's going to judge us based on how we perform, whether we are keeping our head in the game or we're being distracted. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul actually throughout this letter speaks to this. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 17 says, For we are not like many, so many peddlers of the word of God, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God. And here's the piece, that prepositional phrase, we speak in Christ. He was fully aware that God was watching what he was doing. And he says, because of that, we don't peddle God's word. We're, we're not using it to manipulate people. We've become men of sincerity because of that. Because we know that what we speak, we speak in the sight of God. And uh, this leads him even to say what he does in chapter 5, verses 9 through 11, uh, where he says, starting in verse 9, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the one who has been watching so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord that he's watching and we're going to be judged, we persuade others. For what we are is known to God, and I hope that it is also known to your conscience. We're known to God. He's there. He's watching. You see, that's how you keep your head in the game. Hey, the boss is watching. He's watching. Ephesians chapter 5, uh, again instruction in this regard, chapter 5, verses 6 through 17, uh, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the, so the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partners with them, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you are, in light of the, uh, you, you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and trying to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part then in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In summation, walk with divine purpose. 
Knowing, as he says again, or discovering the Lord's will. Realizing that your actions are on display. That's what he means when he says walking in the light. Versus what we used to be. Those hiding in the darkness. Purpose. Always aware. That's head in the game. Hey, the boss is here. It's playtime, right? It's playtime until we go home, man. We're, we're, we're on, we're on the, the field and every play counts. Every action, every word. Head in the game. What am I here for? What am I doing? What's my purpose? I never lose sight of that or I will lose sight of heaven. I won't go there. Jesus condemned people for refusing to have their head in the game. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 verses 1 through 4. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and said to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven He answered them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the sign of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. What's Jesus talking about? Well, again, in summation, wicked people always want a sign, and in this particular context, uh, how is Jesus using this particular term? Well, what is it that the people, more importantly, are asking for? Uh, something or someone to alert them or to do the work of keeping them alert. Hence the reason Jesus says, you, you know how to predict the weather. You can discern from what you see by keeping your head in the game as it relates to the weather patterns around you. You, you know when it's going to rain or when it's not going to rain. When to, when, to, when to get off the rocks because the lightning's coming? You, you, you know that. So it's not like you don't have the capacity to do it. You see, that's the point. Jesus says, but you're wicked because you're lazy. When it comes to spiritual things, you don't want to keep your head in the game. You think you have the excuse, oh, I just wasn't thinking. Sorry about that, God. Sorry about that, Mom and Dad. I just wasn't thinking. Jesus says, you know how to do this. The problem is, you refuse to do it. You refuse to keep your head in the game. You instead, you're like the wicked. You are the wicked. You want someone there to signpost for you, to give you the alert, to do the work for you. You refuse to imitate. You like to ignorate. This is what we see in the cars today, right? The blindside sensors or the proximity braking It's all stuff that used to be required of human beings who had their head in the game of driving. And now I need some sensor to do it for me. You see, that's what Jesus is talking about. You want somebody to do the work for you versus the righteous person who uses the brain that God gave to them and disciplines themselves to know what's going on to keep themselves on the right path. Again, look at Jesus is condemning them for that very thing. You cannot interpret the signs in the times. Uh, it's, it's, he's being facetious here, uh, or sarcastic rather. You can. In the same way you can do it with the weather, you can do it. But you, you, you refuse to keep your head in that game. In that game. Again, Jesus condemned people, his own people, for refusing to have their head in the game. And so again, this final point for today, keep your head in the game. Closing challenge then or contemplation. Here it is. More of a challenge than a contemplation. Don't waste any more time. Don't waste any more time. 
Which means this, if you have stuff on the punch list, the stuff that we've talked about today, then get those items cleared off your record ASAP. Before it's too late. And don't look at it, it's like, oh, I've got all the time in the world. Remember what Jesus says? Like a thief in the night. Before you know it, you're gone. And then it's too late. Finish the punch list. Finish the punch list. So you can win versus lose the eternal reward. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can talk about things that are so very practical, things that are so very relevant to this congregation. I pray that your people receive it that way as words from their shepherd, from their pastor who loves them and wants to get them to heaven. I pray they would receive this as necessary things to understand that uh, These things aren't optional and that it's within their power to change these things. Make it so to the glory of our Savior. In His name we pray. Amen.